This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter 18. Flying through Italy. Marengo. First glimpse of the famous cathedral. Description of some of its wonders. A horror carved in stone. An unpleasant adventure. A good man. A sermon from the tomb. Tons of gold and silver. Some more holy relics. Solomon's Temple. All day long we sped through a mountainous country whose peaks were bright with sunshine, whose hillsides were dotted with pretty villas sitting in the midst of gardens and shrubbery, and whose deep ravines were cool and shady, and looked ever so inviting from where we and the birds were winging our flight through the sultry upper air. We had plenty of chilly tunnels wherein to check our perspiration, though. We timed one of them. We were twenty minutes passing through it, going at the rate of thirty to thirty-five miles an hour. Beyond Alessandria we passed the battlefield of Marengo. Toward dusk we drew near Milan, and caught glimpses of the city and the blue mountain peaks beyond. But we were not caring for these things. They did not interest us in the least. We were in a fever of impatience. We were dying to see the renowned cathedral. We watched, in this direction and that, all around, everywhere. We needed no one to point it out. We did not wish any one to point it out. We would recognize it even in the desert of the great Sahara. At last a forest of graceful needles, shimmering in the amber sunlight, rose slowly above the pygmy housetops, as one sometimes sees, in the far horizon, a gilded and pinnacled mass of cloud lift itself above the waste of waves, at sea the cathedral. We knew it in a moment. Half of that night, and all of the next day, this architectural autocrat was our sole object of interest. What a wonder it is! So grand, so solemn, so vast, and yet so delicate, so airy, so graceful! A very world of solid weight, and yet it seems, in the soft moonlight, only a fairy delusion of frost-work that might vanish with a breath. How sharply its pinnacled angles and its wilderness of spires were cut against the sky, and how richly their shadows fell upon its snowy roof! It was a vision, a miracle, an anthem sung in stone, a poem wrought in marble. Howsoever you look at the great cathedral, it is noble, it is beautiful. Wherever you stand in Milan, or within seven miles of Milan, it is visible, and when it is visible, no other object can chain your whole attention. Leave your eyes unfettered by your will, but a single instant, and they will surely turn to seek it. It is the first thing you look for when you rise in the morning, and the last your lingering gaze rests upon at night. Surely it must be the princeliest creation that ever brain of man conceived. At nine o'clock in the morning we went and stood before this marble colossus. The central one of its five great doors is bordered with a bas-relief of birds and fruits and beasts and insects, which have been so ingeniously carved out of the marble that they seem like living creatures, and the figures are so numerous and the design so complex that one might study it a week without exhausting its interest. On the great steeple, surmounting the myriad of spires, inside of the spires, over the doors, the windows, in nooks and corners, everywhere that a niche or a perch can be found about the enormous building, from summit to base, 
there is a marble statue, and every statue is a study in itself. Raphael, Angelo, Canova, giants like these gave birth to the designs, and their own pupils carved them. Every face is eloquent with expression, and every attitude is full of grace. Away above, on the lofty roof, rank on rank of carved and fretted spires spring high in the air, and through their rich tracery one sees the sky beyond. In their midst the central steeple towers proudly up, like the mainmast of some great Indiaman among a fleet of coasters. We wished to go aloft. The sacristan showed us a marble stairway, of course it was marble, and of the purest and whitest there is no other stone, no brick, no wood among its building materials, and told us to go up one hundred and eighty-two steps, and stop till he came. It was not necessary to say stop. We should have done that anyhow. We were tired by the time we got there. This was the roof. Here, springing from its broad marble flagstones, were the long files of spires, looking very tall, close at hand, but diminishing in the distance like the pipes of an organ. We could see now that the statue on the top of each was the size of a large man, though they all looked like dolls from the street. We could see, also, that from the inside of each and every one of these hollow spires, from sixteen to thirty-one beautiful marble statues looked out upon the world below. From the eaves to the comb of the roof stretched in endless succession great curved marble beams, like the fore-and-aft braces of a steamboat, and along each beam from end to end stood up a row of richly carved flowers and fruits, each separate and distinct in kind, and over fifteen thousand species represented. At a little distance these rows seemed to close together like the ties of a railroad track and then the mingling together of the buds and blossoms of this marble garden forms a picture that is very charming to the eye. We descended and entered. Within the church long rows of fluted columns, like huge monuments, divided the building into broad aisles, and on the figured pavement fell many a soft blush from the painted windows above. I knew the church was very large, but I could not fully appreciate its great size until I noticed that the men standing far down by the altar looked like boys, and seemed to glide rather than walk. We loitered about, gazing aloft at the monster windows all aglow with brilliantly colored scenes in the lives of the Saviour and his followers. Some of these pictures are mosaics, and so artistically are there thousand particles of tinted glass or stone put together that the work has all the smoothness and finish of a painting. We counted sixty panes of glass in one window, and each pane was adorned with one of these master achievements of genius and patience. The guide showed us a coffee-colored piece of sculpture, which he said was considered to have come from the hand of Phidias, since it was not possible that any other artist of any epoch could have copied nature with such faultless accuracy. The figure was that of a man without a skin with every vein, artery, muscle, every fibre and tendon and tissue of the human frame represented in minute detail. It looked natural, because somehow it looked as if it were in pain. A skinned man would be likely to look that way unless his attention were occupied with some other matter. It was a hideous thing, and yet there was a fascination about it somewhere. I am very sorry I saw it, because I shall always see it now. I shall dream of it sometimes. I shall dream that it is resting its corded arms on the bed's head, and looking down on me with its dead eyes. 
I shall dream that it is stretched between the sheets with me, and touching me with its exposed muscles and its stringy cold legs. It is hard to forget repulsive things. I remember yet how I ran off from school once, when I was a boy, and then, pretty late at night, concluded to climb into the window of my father's office and sleep on a lounge, because I had a delicacy about going home and getting thrashed. As I lay on the lounge, and my eyes grew accustomed to the darkness, I fancied I could see a long, dusky, shapeless thing stretched upon the floor. A cold shiver went through me. I turned my face to the wall. That did not answer. I was afraid that that thing would creep over and seize me in the dark. I turned back and stared at it for minutes and minutes. They seemed hours. It appeared to me that the lagging moonlight never, never would get to it. I turned to the wall and counted twenty to pass the feverish time away. I looked. The pale square was nearer. I turned again and counted fifty. It was almost touching it. With desperate will I turned again and counted one hundred, and faced about, all in a tremble. A white human hand lay in the moonlight. Such an awful sinking at the heart, such a sudden gasp for breath, I felt—I cannot tell what I felt. When I recovered strength enough, I faced the wall again. But no boy could have remained so with that mysterious hand behind him. I counted again and looked. The most of a naked arm was exposed. I put my hands over my eyes and counted till I could stand it no longer, and then the pallid face of a man was there, with the corners of the mouth drawn down, and the eyes fixed and glassy in death. I raised to a sitting posture, and glowered on that corpse, till the light crept down to the bare breast-line, by line, inch by inch, past the nipple, and then it disclosed a ghastly stab. I went away from there. I do not say that I went away in any sort of a hurry, but I simply went. That is sufficient. I went out at the window, and carried the sash along with me. I did not need the sash, but it was handiest to take it than it was to leave it. And so I took it. I was not scared, but I was considerably agitated. When I reached home they whipped me, but I enjoyed it. It seemed perfectly delightful. That man had been stabbed near the office that afternoon, and they carried him in there to doctor him, but he only lived an hour. I have slept in the same room with him often since then, in my dreams. Now we will descend into the crypt, under the grand altar of Milan Cathedral, and receive an impressive sermon from lips that have been silent and hands that have been gestureless for three hundred years. The priest stopped in a small dungeon and held up his candle. This was the last resting-place of a good man, a warm-hearted, unselfish man, a man whose whole life was given to succouring the poor, encouraging the faint-hearted, visiting the sick, in relieving distress whenever and wherever he found it. His heart, his hand, and his purse were always open. With his story in one's mind, he can almost see his benignant countenance moving calmly among the haggard faces of Milan in the days when the plague swept the city, brave where all others were cowards, full of compassion where pity had been crushed out of all other breasts by the instinct of self-preservation gone mad with terror, cheering all, praying with all, helping all, with hand and brain and purse, at a time when parents forsook their children, the friend deserted the friend and the brother turned away from the sister while her pleadings were still wailing in his ears. This was good St. Charles Borromeo, Bishop of Milan. The people idolized him. Princes lavished uncounted treasures upon him. We stood in his tomb. Nearby was the sarcophagus lighted by the dripping candles. 
The walls were faced with bas-reliefs, representing scenes in his life done in massive silver. The priest put on a short white lace garment over his black robe, crossed himself, bowed reverently, and began to turn a windlass slowly. The sarcophagus separated in two parts, lengthwise, and the lower part sank down and disclosed a coffin of rock-crystal as clear as the atmosphere. Within lay the body, robed in costly habiliments covered with gold embroidery and starred with scintillating gems. The decaying head was black with age, the dry skin was drawn tight to the bones, the eyes were gone, there was a hole in the temple and another in the cheek, and the skinny lips were parted as in a ghastly smile. Over this dreadful face, its dust and decay, and its mocking grin, hung a crown sewn thick with flashing brilliance, and upon the breast lay crosses and croziers of solid gold that were splendid with emeralds and diamonds. How poor and cheap and trivial these gewgaws seemed, in presence of the solemnity, the grandeur, the awful majesty of death! Think of Milton, Shakespeare, Washington, standing before a reverent world, tricked out in the glass beads, the brass earrings, and tin trumpery of the savages of the plains. Dead Bartolomeo preached his pregnant sermon, and its burden was, You that worship the vanities of earth, you that long for worldly honor, worldly wealth, worldly fame, behold their worth. To us it seemed that so good a man, so kind a heart, so simple a nature, deserved rest and peace in a grave sacred from the intrusion of prying eyes, and believed that he himself would have preferred to have it so, but peradventure our wisdom was at fault in this regard. As we came out upon the floor of the church again, another priest volunteered to show us the treasures of the church. What more? The furniture of the narrow chamber of death we had just visited weighed six millions of francs in ounces and carats alone, without a penny thrown into the account for the costly workmanship bestowed upon them. But we followed into a large room filled with tall wooden presses like wardrobes. He threw them open, and, behold, the cargoes of crude bullion of the assay offices of Nevada faded out of my memory. There were virgins and bishops there above their natural size, made of solid silver, each worth by weight from eight hundred thousand to two millions of francs, and bearing gemmed books in their hands worth eighty thousand. There were bas-reliefs that weighed six hundred pounds, carved in solid silver. Croziers and crosses and candlesticks six and eight feet tall, all of virgin gold, and brilliant with precious stones and besides these were all manner of cups and vases, and such things, rich in proportion. It was an Aladdin's palace. The treasures here, by simple weight, without counting workmanship, were valued at fifty millions of francs. If I could get the custody of them for a while, I fear me the market-price of silver bishops would advance shortly, on account of their exceeding scarcity in the Cathedral of Milan. The priests showed us two of St. Paul's fingers, and one of St. Peter's a bone of Judas Iscariot, it was black, and also bones of all the other disciples, a handkerchief in which the Saviour had left the impression of his face. Among the most precious of the relics were a stone from the Holy Sepulchre, part of the crown of thorns, they have a whole one at Notre Dame, a fragment of the purple robe worn by the Saviour, a nail from the cross, and a picture of the Virgin and Child painted by the veritable hand of St. Luke. This is the second of St. Luke's virgins we have seen. Once a year all these holy relics are carried in procession through the streets of Milan. 
I like to revel in the driest details of the great cathedral. The building is five hundred feet long by one hundred and eighty wide, and the principal steeple is in the neighborhood of four hundred feet high. It has seven thousand one hundred and forty-eight marble statues, and will have upwards of three thousand more when it is finished. In addition it has one thousand five hundred bas-reliefs. It has one hundred and thirty-six spires. Twenty-one more are to be added. Each spire is surmounted by a statue six and a half feet high. Everything about the church is marble, and all from the same quarry. It was bequeathed to the archbishopric for this purpose centuries ago, so nothing but the mere workmanship costs. Still, that is expensive. The bill foots up six hundred and eighty-four millions of francs thus far, considerably over a hundred millions of dollars, and it is estimated that it will take a hundred and twenty years yet to finish the cathedral. It looks complete, but is far from being so. We saw a new statue put in its niche yesterday, alongside of one which had been standing these four hundred years, they said. There are four staircases leading up to the main steeple, each of which cost a hundred thousand dollars, with the four hundred and eight statues which adorn them. Marco Compioni was the architect who designed the wonderful structure more than five hundred years ago, and it took him forty-six years to work out the plan and get it ready to hand over to the builders. He is dead now. The building was begun a little less than five hundred years ago, and the third generation hence will not see it completed. The building looks best by moonlight, because the older portions of it, being stained with age, contrast unpleasantly with the newer and whiter portions. It seems somewhat too broad for its height, but maybe familiarity with it might dissipate this impression. They say that the Cathedral of Milan is second only to St. Peter's at Rome. I cannot understand how it can be second to anything made by human hands. We bid it good-bye, now, possibly for all time. How surely, in some future day, when the memory of it shall have lost its vividness, shall we half believe we have seen it in a wonderful dream, but never with waking eyes! End of chapter 18 Chapter 19 Do you whiz o oat can be? La Scala Petrarch and Laura Lucrezia Borgia Ingenious frescoes Ancient Roman amphitheatre A clever delusion Distressing billiards, the chief charm of European life, an Italian bath, wanted soap, crippled French, mutilated English, the most celebrated painting in the world, amateur raptures, uninspired critics, anecdote, a wonderful echo, a kiss for a franc. Do you wizzo hot can be? That was what the guide asked when we were looking up at the bronze horses on the Arch of Peace. It meant, do you wish to go up there? I give it as a specimen of guide English. These are the people that make life a burden to the tourist. Their tongues are never still. They talk forever and forever, and that is the kind of billingsgate they use. Inspiration itself could hardly comprehend them. If they would only show you a masterpiece of art, or a venerable tomb, or a prison-house, or a battlefield, hallowed by touching memories, or historical reminiscences, or grand traditions, and then step aside and hold still for ten minutes and let you think, it would not be so bad. But they interrupt every dream, every pleasant train of thought, with their tiresome cackling. 
Sometimes, when I have been standing before some cherished old idol of mine that I remembered years and years ago in pictures in the geography at school, I have thought I would give a whole world if the human parrot at my side would suddenly perish where he stood and leave me to gaze and ponder and worship. No, we did not whiz so it can be. We wished to go to La Scala, the largest theatre in the world, I think they call it. We did so. It was a large place, seven separate and distinct masses of humanity, six great circles, and a monster parquet. We wished to go to the Ambrosian Library, and we did that also. We saw a manuscript of Virgil, with annotations in the handwriting of Petrarch, the gentleman who loved another man's Laura, and lavished upon her all through life a love which was a clear waste of the raw material. It was sound sentiment, but bad judgment. It brought both parties fame, and created a fountain of commiseration for them in sentimental breasts that is running yet. But who says a word in behalf of poor Mr. Laura? I do not know his other name. Who glorifies him? Who bedews him with tears? Who writes poetry about him? Nobody. How do you suppose he liked the state of things that has given the world so much pleasure? How did he enjoy having another man following his wife everywhere, and making her name a familiar word in every garlic-exterminating mouth in Italy, with his sonnets to her preempted eyebrows? They got fame and sympathy. He got neither. This is a peculiarly felicitous instance of what is called poetical justice. It is all very fine, but it does not chime with my notions of right. It is too one-sided, too ungenerous. Let the world go on fretting about Laura and Petrarch, if it will, but as for me, my tears and my lamentations shall be lavished upon the unsung defendant. We saw only an autograph letter of Lucrezia Borgia, a lady for whom I have always entertained the highest respect, on account of her rare histrionic capabilities, her opulence in solid gold goblets made of gilded wood, her high distinction as an operatic screamer, and the facility with which she could order a sextuple funeral and get the corpses ready for it. We saw one single coarse yellow hair from Lucretia's head, likewise. It awoke emotions, but we still live. In this same library we saw some drawings by Michael Angelo, these Italians call him Michel Angelo, and Leonardo da Vinci. They spell it Vinci, and pronounce it Vinci. Foreigners always spell better than they pronounce. We reserve our opinion of these sketches. In another building they showed us a fresco, representing some lions and other beasts drawing chariots, and they seemed to project so far from the wall that we took them to be sculptures. The artist had shrewdly heightened the delusion by painting dust on the creatures' backs, as if it had fallen there naturally and properly. Smart fellow! if it be smart to deceive strangers. Elsewhere we saw a huge Roman amphitheatre, with its stone seats still in good preservation. Modernized, it is now the scene of more peaceful recreations than the exhibition of a party of wild beasts with Christians for dinner. Part of the time the Milanese use it for a race-track, and at other seasons they flood it with water and have spirited yachting regattas there. The guide told us these things, and he would hardly try so hazardous an experiment as the telling of a falsehood, when it is all he can do to speak the truth in English without getting the lockjaw. In another place we were shown a sort of summer arbor, with a fence before it. We said that was nothing. 
we looked again and saw through the arbor an endless stretch of garden and shrubbery and grassy lawn we were perfectly willing to go in there and rest but it could not be done it was only another delusion a painting by some ingenious artist with little charity in his heart for tired folk the deception was perfect no one could have imagined the park was not real we even thought we smelled the flowers at first we got a carriage at twilight and drove in the shaded avenues with the other nobility and after dinner we took wine and ices in a fine garden with a great public the music was excellent, the flowers and shrubbery were pleasant to the eye, the scene was vivacious, everybody was genteel and well-behaved, and the ladies were slightly moustached and handsomely dressed, but very homely. We adjourned to a café and played billiards an hour, and I made six or seven points by the doctor pocketing his ball, and he made as many by my pocketing my ball. We came near making a carome sometimes, but not the one we were trying to make. The table was of the usual European style, cushions dead and twice as high as the balls, the cues in bad repair. The natives play only a sort of pool on them. We have never seen anybody playing the French three-ball game yet, and I doubt if there is any such game known in France, or that there lives any man mad enough to try to play it on one of these European tables. We had to stop playing, finally, because Dan got to sleeping fifteen minutes between the counts and paying no attention to his marking. Afterward we walked up and down one of the most popular streets for some time, enjoying other people's comfort and wishing we could export some of it to our restless, driving, vitality-consuming marts at home. Just in this one matter lies the main charm of life in Europe—comfort. In America we hurry, which is well but when the day's work is done, we go on thinking of losses and gains, we plan for the morrow, we even carry our business cares to bed with us, and toss and worry over them when we ought to be restoring our racked bodies and brains with sleep. We burn up our energies with these excitements, and either die early or drop into a lean and mean old age at a time of life which they call a man's prime in Europe. When an acre of ground has produced long and well, we let it lie fallow and rest for a season. We take no man clear across the continent in the same coach he started in. The coach is stabled somewhere on the plains, and its heated machinery allowed to cool for a few days. When a razor has seen long service and refuses to hold an edge, the barber lays it away for a few weeks, and the edge comes back of its own accord. We bestow thoughtful care upon inanimate objects, but none upon ourselves. What a robust people, what a nation of thinkers we might be, if we would only lay ourselves on the shelf occasionally, and renew our edges! I do envy these Europeans the comfort they take. When the work of the day is done, they forget it. Some of them go, with wife and children, to a beer-hall, and sit quietly and genteelly drinking a mug or two of ale, and listening to music. Others walk the streets, others drive in the avenues. Others assemble in the great ornamental squares in the early evening to enjoy the sight and the fragrance of flowers, and to hear the military bands play, no European city being without its fine military music at eventide. And yet others of the populace sit in the open air in front of the refreshment houses, and eat ices, and drink mild beverages that could not harm a child. They go to bed moderately early, and sleep well. They are always quiet, always orderly, always cheerful, comfortable, 
and appreciative of life and its manifold blessings. One never sees a drunken man among them. The change that has come over our little party is surprising. Day by day we lose some of our restlessness, and absorb some of the spirit of quietude and ease that is in the tranquil atmosphere about us and in the demeanor of the people. We grow wise apace. We begin to comprehend what life is for. We have had a bath in Milan, in a public bathhouse. They were going to put all three of us in one bathtub, but we objected. Each of us had an Italian farm on his back. We could have felt affluent if we had been officially surveyed and fenced in. We chose to have three bathtubs, and large ones, tubs suited to the dignity of aristocrats who had real estate, and brought it with them. After we were stripped and had taken the first chilly dash, we discovered that haunting atrocity that has embittered our lives in so many cities and villages of Italy and France. There was no soap. I called. A woman answered. And I barely had time to throw myself against the door. She would have been in in another second. I said, Beware, woman. Go away from here. Go away now, or it will be the worst for you. I am an unprotected male but I will preserve my honor at the peril of my life." These words must have frightened her, for she scurried away very fast. Dan's voice rose on the air. "'Oh, bring some soap, why don't you?' The reply was Italian. Dan resumed. "'Soap, you know, soap. That is what I want, soap. S-O-A-P, soap. Sope, soap. Soap, soap. Hurry up. I don't know how you Irish spell it, but I want it. Spell it to suit yourself, but fetch it. I'm freezing." I heard the doctor say impressively, "'Dan, how often have we told you that these foreigners cannot understand English? Why will you not depend upon us? Why will you not tell us what you want, and let us ask for it in the language of the country? It would save us a great deal of the humiliation your reprehensible ignorance causes us. I will address this person in his mother tongue. Here, cospetto, corpo di bacco, sacramento, solferino, soap, you son of a gun. Dan, if you would let us talk for you, you would never expose your ignorant vulgarity. Even this fluent discharge of Italian did not bring the soap at once, but there was a good reason for it. There was not such an article about the establishment. It is my belief that there never had been. They had to send far uptown, and to several different places before they finally got it. So they said. We had to wait twenty or thirty minutes. The same thing had occurred the evening before at the hotel. I think I have divined the reason for this state of things at last. The English know how to travel comfortably, and they carry soap with them. Other foreigners do not use the article. At every hotel we stop at we always have to send out for soap at the last moment when we are grooming ourselves for dinner, and they put it in the bill along with the candles and other nonsense. In Marseilles they make half the fancy toilet soap we consume in America, but the Marseillaise only have a vague theoretical idea of its use, which they have obtained from books of travel, just as they have acquired an uncertain notion of clean shirts and the peculiarities of the gorilla and other curious matters. This reminds me of poor Blucher's note to the landlord in Paris. Paris, le 7 juillet. Monsieur le landlord, sir, pourquoi don't you mettez some savon in your bedchambers? 
Est-ce que vous pensez I will steal it? La nuit passée you charged me pour deux chandelles, when I only had one. Hier vous avez charged me avec glace, when I had none at all. Tous les jours you are coming some fresh game or other on me, mais vous ne pouvez pas play this savon dodge on me twice. Savon is a necessary de la vie to anybody but a Frenchman. Et je l'aurai hors de ce hôtel or make trouble. You hear me? Allons! Blucher. I remonstrated against the sending of this note, because it was so mixed up that the landlord would never be able to make head or tail of it. But Blucher said he guessed the old man could read the French of it, and average the rest. Blucher's French is bad enough, but it is not much worse than the English one finds in advertisements all over Italy every day. For instance, observe the printed card of the hotel we shall probably stop at on the shores of Lake Como. Notish! This hotel, which the best it is in Italy and most superb, is handsome locate on the best situation of the lake, with the most splendid view near the village Melzi to the king of Belgium and Cerbelloni. This hotel have recently enlarged, do offer all commodities on moderate price, at the strangers gentlemen who wish spend the seasons on the Lake Combe. How is that for a specimen? In the hotel is a handsome little chapel where an English clergyman is employed to preach to such of the guests of the house as hail from England and America, and this fact is also set forth in barbarous English in the same advertisement. Wouldn't you have supposed that the adventurous linguist who framed the card would have known enough to submit it to that clergyman before he sent it to the printer? Here in Milan, in an ancient tumble-down ruin of a church, is the mournful wreck of the most celebrated painting in the world, The Last Supper, by Leonardo da Vinci. We are not infallible judges of pictures, but of course we went there to see this wonderful painting, once so beautiful, always so worshipped by masters in art, and forever to be famous in song and story. And the first thing that occurred was the infliction on us of a placard fairly reeking with wretched English. Take a morsel of it. Bartholomew, that is, the first figure on the left-hand side at the spectator, uncertain and doubtful about what he thinks to have heard, and upon which he wants to be assured by himself at Christ and by no others. Good, isn't it? And then Peter is described as argumenting in a threatening and angrily condition at Judas Iscariot. This paragraph recalls the picture. The Last Supper is painted on the dilapidated wall of what was a little chapel attached to the main church in ancient times, I suppose. It is battered and scarred in every direction, and stained and discolored by time, and Napoleon's horses kicked the legs off most of the disciples when they, the horses, not the disciples, were stabled there more than half a century ago. I recognized the old picture in a moment, the Saviour with bowed head seated at the centre of a long, rough table with scattered fruits and dishes upon it, and six disciples on either side in their long robes, talking to each other, the picture from which all engravings and all copies have been made for three centuries. Perhaps no living man has ever known an attempt to paint the Lord's Supper differently. The world seems to have become settled in the belief long ago that it is not possible for human genius to outdo this creation of da Vinci's. I suppose painters will go on copying it as long as any one of the original is left visible to the eye. There were a dozen easels in the room, and as many artists transferring the great picture to their canvases. 
Fifty proofs of steel engravings and lithographs were scattered around, too. And, as usual, I could not help noticing how superior the copies were to the original, that is, to my inexperienced eye. Wherever you find a Raphael, a Rubens, a Michelangelo, a Caracci, or a Da Vinci, and we see them every day, you find artists copying them, and the copies are always the handsomest. Maybe the originals were handsome when they were new, but they are not now. This picture is about thirty feet long and ten or twelve high, I should think, and the figures are at least life-size. It is one of the largest paintings in Europe. The colors are dimmed with age, the countenances are scaled and marred, and nearly all expression is gone from them. The hair is a dead blur upon the wall, and there is no life in the eyes. Only the attitudes are certain. People come here from all parts of the world and glorify this masterpiece. They stand entranced before it with bated breath and parted lips, and when they speak, it is only in the catchy ejaculations of rapture. Oh, wonderful! Such expression! Such grace of attitude! Such dignity! Such faultless drawing! Such matchless coloring! Such feeling! What delicacy of touch! What sublimity of conception! A vision! A vision! I only envy these people. I envy them their honest admiration, if it be honest, their delight, if they feel delight. I harbor no animosity toward any of them, but at the same time the thought will intrude itself upon me, how can they see what is not visible? What would you think of a man who looked at some decayed, blind, toothless, pock-marked Cleopatra, and said, what matchless beauty, what soul, what expression! What would you think of a man who gazed upon a dingy, foggy sunset, and said, What sublimity, what feeling, what richness of coloring! What would you think of a man who stared in ecstasy upon a desert of stumps, and said, Oh, my soul, my beating heart, what a noble forest is here! You would think that those men had an astonishing talent for seeing things that had already passed away. It was what I thought when I stood before the Last Supper, and heard men apostrophizing wonders, and beauties, and perfections, which had faded out of the picture and gone, a hundred years before they were born. We can imagine the beauty that was once in an aged face. We can imagine the forest if we see the stumps. But we cannot absolutely see these things when they are not there. I am willing to believe that the eye of the practiced artist can rest upon the Last Supper and renew a lustre where only a hint of it is left, supply a tint that has faded away, restore an expression that is gone, patch and color, and add to the dull canvas until at last its figures shall stand before him aglow with the life, the feeling, the freshness, yea, with all the noble beauty that was theirs when first they came from the hand of the Master. But I cannot work this miracle. Can those other uninspired visitors do it, or do they only happily imagine they do? After reading so much about it, I am satisfied that the Last Supper was a very miracle of art once, but it was three hundred years ago. It vexes me to hear people talk so glibly of feeling, expression, tone, and those other easily acquired and inexpensive technicalities of art that make such a fine show in conversations concerning pictures. There is not one man in seventy-five hundred that can tell what a pictured face is intended to express. 
there's not one man in five hundred that can go into a courtroom and be sure that he will not mistake some harmless innocent of a juryman for the black-hearted assassin on trial. Yet such people talk of character and presume to interpret expression in pictures. There is an old story that Matthews, the actor, was once lauding the ability of the human face to express the passions and emotions hidden in the breast. He said the countenance could disclose what was passing in the heart plainer than the tongue could. Now, he said, observe my face. What does it express? Despair. Bah! It expresses peaceful resignation. What does this express? Rage. Stuff. It means terror. This. Imbecility. Fool. It is smothered ferocity. Now this. Joy. Oh, perdition! Any ass can see it means insanity. Expression. People coolly pretend to read it who think themselves presumptuous if they pretended to interpret the hieroglyphics on the obelisk of Luxor. Yet they are fully as competent to do the one thing as the other. I have heard two very intelligent critics speak of Murillo's immaculate conception, now in the museum at Seville, within the past few days. One said, Oh, the Virgin's face is full of the ecstasy of a joy that is complete, that leaves nothing more to be desired on earth. The other said, Ah, that wonderful face is so humble, so pleading, it says as plainly as words could say it, I fear, I tremble, I am unworthy, but thy will be done, sustain thou thy servant. The reader can see the picture in any drawing-room, it can be easily recognized. The Virgin, the only young and really beautiful virgin that was ever painted by one of the old masters, some of us think, stands in the crescent of the new moon, with a multitude of cherubs hovering about her, and more coming. Her hands are crossed upon her breast, and upon her uplifted countenance falls a glory out of the heavens. The reader may amuse himself, if he chooses, in trying to determine which of these gentlemen read the Virgin's expression aright, or if either of them did it. Any one who is acquainted with the old masters will comprehend how much the Last Supper is damaged when I say that the spectator cannot really tell, now, whether the disciples are Hebrews or Italians. These ancient painters never succeeded in denationalizing themselves. The Italian artists painted Italian virgins. The Dutch painted Dutch virgins. The virgins of the French painters were Frenchwomen. None of them ever put into the face of the Madonna that indescribable something which proclaims the Jewess, whether you find her in New York, in Constantinople, in Paris, Jerusalem, or in the Empire of Morocco. I saw in the Sandwich Islands once a picture copied by a talented German artist from an engraving in one of the American illustrated papers. It was an allegory, representing Mr. Davis in the act of signing a secession act or some such document. Over him hovered the ghost of Washington in warning attitude, and in the background a troop of shadowy soldiers in continental uniform were limping with shoeless, bandaged feet through a driving snowstorm. Valley Forge was suggested, of course. The copy seemed accurate, and yet there was a discrepancy somewhere. After a long examination I discovered what it was. The shadowy soldiers were all Germans. Jeff Davis was a German. Even the hovering ghost was a German ghost. The artist had unconsciously worked his nationality into the picture. To tell the truth, I am getting a little perplexed about John the Baptist and his portraits. In France I finally grew reconciled to him as a Frenchman. 
Here he is unquestionably an Italian. What next? Can it be possible that the painters make John the Baptist a Spaniard in Madrid, and an Irishman in Dublin? We took an open barouche, and drove two miles out of Milan to see Zieco, as the guide expressed it. The road was smooth, it was bordered by trees, fields, and grassy meadows, and the soft air was filled with the odor of flowers. Troops of picturesque peasant girls, coming from work, hooted at us, shouted at us, made all manner of game of us, and entirely delighted me. My long-cherished judgment was confirmed. I always did think those frowsy, romantic, unwashed peasant girls I had read so much about in poetry were a glaring fraud. We enjoyed our jaunt. It was an exhilarating relief from tiresome sightseeing. We distressed ourselves very little about the astonishing echo the guide talked so much about. We were growing accustomed to encomiums on wonders that too often proved no wonders at all. And so we were most happily disappointed to find in the sequel that the guide had even failed to rise to the magnitude of his subject. We arrived at a tumble-down old rookery called the Palazzo Simonetti, a massive hume-stone affair occupied by a family of ragged Italians. A good-looking young girl conducted us to a window on the second floor which looked out on a court walled on three sides by tall buildings. She put her head out at the window and shouted. The echo answered more times than we could count. She took a speaking-trumpet, and through it she shouted, sharp and quick, a single, HA! The echo answered, HA! 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 and finally went off into a rollicking convulsion of the jolliest laughter that could be imagined. It was so joyful, so long-continued, so perfectly cordial and hearty, that everybody was forced to join in. There was no resisting it. Then the girl took a gun and fired it. We stood ready to count the astonishing clatter of reverberations. We could not say one, two, three fast enough, but we could dot our notebooks with our pencil points almost rapidly enough to take down a sort of shorthand report of the result. My page revealed the following account. I could not keep up, but I did as well as I could. I set down fifty-two distinct repetitions, and then the echo got the advantage of me. The doctor set down sixty-four, and thenceforth the echo moved too fast for him also. After the separate concussions could no longer be noted, the reverberations dwindled to a wild, long-sustained clatter of sounds such as a watchman's rattle produces. It is likely that this is the most remarkable echo in the world. The doctor, in jest, offered to kiss the young girl, and was taken a little aback when she said he might for a franc. The commonest gallantry compelled him to stand by his offer, and so he paid the franc and took the kiss. She was a philosopher. She said a franc was a good thing to have, and she did not care anything for one paltry kiss, because she had a million left. Then our comrade, always a shrewd businessman, offered to take the whole cargo at thirty days, but that little financial scheme was a failure. End of chapter 19